Hello and welcome to London. I'm Susan Spence. Thank you for downloading the Holiday in London City Guide podcast. During my trip, I stayed at the Holiday in London Mayfair. But as you'd expect here in England's capital city, there are lots of Holiday in properties to suit all tastes and budgets. So no matter which part of London you want to stay in, Camden, Kensington or Regent's Park, or what you want to do, visit Buckingham Palace, go up on the London Eye or shop till you drop. There'll be a Holiday Inn to match your needs. And remember to take a look at the Express by Holiday Inn Properties too. Express is a comfortable, low-cost alternative, but still maintains the same standards you've come to expect from a Holiday Inn and offers complimentary continental breakfast for all guests. You can find details of all our hotels online at ihg.com. And just before we start to explore London, let me tell you how you can receive up to 35% off your next weekend stay at any of our Holiday Inn properties. Just visit our website, ihg.com forward slash podcast. That's ihg.com forward slash podcast for all the details. London is one of the world's most vibrant and cosmopolitan cities. Its rich and varied history provides visitors with an abundance of attractions. In fact, it's not uncommon for tourists to feel a little dazed at the prospect. Despite its enormous size, London is still the fastest-growing city in Europe. It's constantly changing, so don't be surprised to see new London mixed with old London all on the same street. There's so much to see and do in England's capital city that we've concentrated this podcast guide on Mayfair and its immediate surroundings. I'm now in Barclay Square, which is where we will start our tour. Um, I have my own personal guide for the day, and he is Mike Wilson from Backroads Touring. Backroads Touring are an independent tour company who do tours around London and other areas of the UK. Mike, thank you very much for taking the time out to show me around. We're standing in Barclay Square. Now, this place itself, very, very significant when we talk about Mayfair. Hello, Susan. Yes, we're standing in a kind of a green oasis in the middle of Mayfair. We're surrounded by London plane trees, those trees that were planted when the square was built in the early 1700s, and they're very resistant to pollution. The leaves are very smooth and the rain runs off, and also the bark peels off, which was excellent in days gone by when London suffered from enormous pollution. Well, Mayfair is a district of aristocrats. It's a district of extreme opulence these days, and it all started really, back in the 1700s, when London was expanding to the west. The city of London, the old Roman city and medieval city, uh, to the east was the commercial heart. And then nearer to us, Westminster, started a thousand years ago when a palace and an abbey was built there, and the home of the court and of government ever since. And so people moving into London with wealth wanted to be close to the court, They wanted to be close to the seat of power and they wanted to be away from the polluted, crowded streets of the city. And so in the 1700s they started building these squares and wide streets, nice brick townhouses, some of which you can still see around us on the west side of the square, rather darkened by the pollution over the years, a blackish brick. And they brought their families here in the summer for the London season. And where we are in Barclay Square is actually a good point for that because here they still have a May ball. And if you were a landed sort of gentleman, a lord or uh, an earl, you might bring your family to London for this period when your young daughter of 17 would have her coming out balls 
Uh, you would attend various court functions. And in fact, this is the origin of events that still continue in London today, like Wimbledon or the Henley Regatta or Royal Ascot, which the Queen still attends. So we're very much in the heart of that special opulent district and although most of those families no longer have townhouses here they've been replaced by the great hotels such as Claridge's and the Connaught the Ritz and um, all the luxury shops that are here in Bond Street and around the hotel very much reflect that wealth. It's, it's one of these things that you really kind of feel the difference in this part of London. You talk about the opulence. Um, you can feel it as, as we're standing here and when we're looking at the different people wandering around. Now, there are many ways that we could go from Barclay Square. We could head off into Piccadilly itself. We could uh, take a look at Old Bond Street for the shopping, um, head towards Piccadilly Circus. But first of all, we're going to take a walk down, um, cross through Green Park and also um, have a look at Buckingham Palace. Well, we've now come into Green Park, which is one of the many royal parks in London. It is a lovely park, probably one of the smaller ones as well. Uh, one thing I, as I have to say, Mike, first thing I noticed, something very, very British, and that is a whole line of deck chairs. Yes, in fact, Green Park is famous for that. Literally a stone's throw from the hotel. Um, you walk across Piccadilly and uh, off the little path that leads into the park, you'll see these deck chairs available for hire. And on a nice, sunny sort of summer's afternoon, there's no better thing to do after the sort of hustle and bustle of Piccadilly. Quite different sort of pastime to what the Royal Parks were intended for because all of the Royal Parks that you now see in uh, central London were once part of a great big hunting park. And this, of course, was owned by the king, the monarch of England at the time, and was used purely for hunting. These days, they've been split into separate parks. And Green Park is the smallest of them. Many people fought duels in the parks, very much part of 18th century society. If a gentleman insulted you, you would offer him out. And then he had the choice of weapons, and you could then fight a little bout in the park. One person was often carried back dead to his hotel. But in those days, the gentlemen were kind of above the law. Because Green Park is the smallest of the royal parks, it's only literally five minutes' walk right across it, and we're standing outside Buckingham Palace. Now, I have to say, this is one of my favourite London sites, standing at one end of the mile, looking down and seeing Buckingham Palace in all its splendour at the other end. It's one of these sites, Mike, I have to say, it kind of gives me goosebumps. Yes, isn't it wonderful? The Mall is London's grandest street. It's a planned street for ceremonial occasions. Whenever the Queen goes to open Parliament, she comes down here in all her glory and her coach and livery and all the rest of it. And uh, also visiting heads of state also make a ceremonial route up here to the palace. The palace itself is was originally just a house. It was built for the Duke of Buckingham. During the reign of the Georges, during the 18th century, it was bought as a palace and then gradually extended. The garden at the back, the Queen's private garden, is the largest private garden in London, 30 acres. But she doesn't have it all to herself. It's really the place where she hosts her garden parties. And about 10,000 people every summer will attend these garden parties. It's a sign of having arrived in British society once you get invited to one of those. Now, we're here in the afternoon, but, of course, one of the big attractions in the morning is the changing of the guard. Yes, this is one of London's great sights. I remember as a child coming down here and watching the soldiers march up from Wellington barracks in their red tunics with a band playing. These days, it can get rather busy. 
But it is still something worth seeing, a bit of London pageantry. And right in front of the palace is the wonderful Victoria Memorial. It has all the, the gold statues at the top. Then, of course, we've got Queen Victoria who sat there Um, you know, overseeing everything, as you can imagine that she would do. There's a bit of a story behind this. Yes, built at the turn of the century, of course. It marked um, Victoria's Golden Jubilee. And it really is the ultimate imperial statement because we have to remember that London was, for hundreds of years, an imperial city, the most important trading city in the world and the most powerful political city as well. And right at the centre of it was the Empress of India, queen of the largest empire the world had ever seen, and that's shown there by that extraordinary monument right in front of the palace. I've just noticed, Susan, that the royal standard is flying. I won't attempt to describe the flag, but the other flag that you'll see is the Union flag, often called mistakenly the Union Jack. It's only a Union Jack when it flies on a ship. When the royal standard is flying, that means the queen is in residence. But she doesn't occupy the whole of the palace, floating around all its grand state rooms every day. She has an apartment or a flat of just 12 rooms for her and Prince Philip. There was a recent incident where a hot dog seller set up just beneath that flat and she, she uh, asked to have him removed, poor fellow. And, of course, there are times when, actually, we can go into the palace. Yes, that's a fairly recent thing, actually. Um, you may remember, some of you, some years back, that Windsor Castle burned down, or at least a part of it. The restoration cost £50 million, and the Queen paid for it. And to pay for it, despite the fact she's very, very rich, she decided to open up the palace to visitors in the summer months. Originally, it was just August. Now it's been extended. And ask your concierge for any later extensions. But during the summer months... This part of London is one of the few planned parts of the city. London has always been considered a, a labyrinth, a maze, the ultimate maze, if you like. And anybody that's read any of Dickens's novels will have a feeling for that, that type of London. Well, to wind your way through the maze is incredibly difficult. And so Londoners rely upon taxis more than perhaps in other cities. These taxi drivers have to take a special test, and it's called the knowledge. Um, as we stand here now, I can see a motor scooter with uh, a clipboard on the front, and that chap is learning routes through the metropolis, and he will attend a number of tests at which he has to sort of relay all the streets to the right and the left of him as he takes one of these routes across London. An incredibly difficult thing to do, and they need very, very good memories to get through the test. So a very, very difficult thing to do, and it does mean that the cab drivers in London are professional. And especially if you're a woman, you know that when you get into a black cab, you're safe. You won't be overcharged, and you won't be assaulted. They're all licensed by the Metropolitan Police, and you can see that extra license plate on the back of the taxi. Now, Buckingham Palace might be my favourite London attraction, but it's not the number one, is it? No, indeed, Susan, it's not. Plenty of people come here to peer through the gates and the railings and look at the soldiers standing on guard outside the palace. Uh, but apart from the summer months, it's not really a tourist attraction at all. The big pulls in London are the four um, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And London, in fact, is unique in having four in the world. The one closest to here would be Westminster, and that centres on Westminster Abbey and the Houses of Parliament. That's sort of most iconic of London views. Then, further east in the city of London, we have the Tower of London, the world's oldest fortress still in use as a fortress, a complete medieval castle. 
with the crown jewels and all sorts of attractions. Then further east still, down the river, there's Greenwich, home of the Greenwich Meridian and the Royal Observatory and the Maritime Museum. And finally, London's newest World Heritage Site is Kew Gardens, the mother of all botanical gardens. Well, we're very close to Hyde Park here, so we're going to take a wander up there, have a quick peek, and then we're going to head back down to Piccadilly and hit the shops. Well, we've walked up through Green Park and across the very busy junction of Hyde Park Corner into the somewhat larger Hyde Park. And in fact, it's really two parks, Hyde Park and Kensington Gardens to the west. But right now we're standing in front of the Serpentine, the lake of Hyde Park where you can boat... Or also, if you're particularly sort of masochistic, you can swim, as do a number of uh, lunatics, shall we say, at 6 o'clock every morning, 365 days a year. The Serpentine Swimming Club sometimes have to break the ice to get into the water, but they doggedly go about it every single day. And we've just walked up to the far side of the lake and into Kensington Gardens, where there's, well, there's a little boy here who, I have to say, um, holds a special place in my heart. He was my favourite growing up. It is a statue to Peter Pan. Yes, Jay and Barry used to live on the north side of the park and take his morning walk here every day. And he came across a chap every day, or most days, who never seemed to grow any older. And that gave him the idea for Peter Pan. Yeah, and one of the things I love about the story of this statue is the fact that it was actually built in the middle of the night and then unveiled in the morning so that all the children came across it as if it was pure magic, which, of course, is all about the story of Peter Pan. Before we leave Hyde Park, it's worth strolling across to Marble Arch, uh, a corner of which is known as Speaker's Corner. If you find yourself here on a Sunday, you can amuse yourself for half an hour listening to extravagant political discourse or religious discourse left over from the time when this was London's major execution site. Now, its old name was Tyburn. Oxford Street, straight ahead of us, leading down into the heart of London, the heart of London's West End, was once the major road, the Oxford Road, which led down to Newgate Prison. And the condemned, those condemned to be hanged, would move up that road on a cart. And when they finally arrived at Tyburn, it was an extraordinary scene. As many as 200,000 people would be gathered there to watch the hanging. Well, the condemned would be allowed to say a few last words. You could hardly stop them, seeing they were going to be put to death. And they were expected to make a brave speech. And this is the tradition of Speaker's Corner. As long as you're standing nine inches above the ground, you can say what you want about the king or the government or anything else for that matter. And that's what people still do today, although because of the media and more modern outlets for people's freedom of speech, it tends to be the more cranky people that gather here. But very entertaining if you've got a spare half an hour. Well, we've now left Hyde Park. We've crossed over Park Lane and into Piccadilly. It's taken us probably about ten minutes... We're just off Piccadilly on the corner of St. James's Street and German Street. Mike, this area here, lots to see and do. Yes, and in fact, we've just entered another world, the district of St. James's, famous for its gentlemen's clubs and its haute couture gentlemen shopping, I suppose I could say, along with things like cigars and hats and all the rest of it. At the bottom of the street... Uh, we can see a big brick building, which is St. James's Palace. It's from this palace that Charles I, the king that we executed, left on the 31st of December to walk down to Whitehall to have his head cut off. He wore two shirts so as not to appear to be nervous. It was a cold morning. 
He didn't want to shiver and give people the wrong impression. Next door to that is where now Prince Charles has his base in London. But that gives the flavour for this area. It's very upmarket male, very gentlemanly. And the gentlemen's clubs for whom St James is, is home developed in the 17th century out of coffee houses. In the city of London, the more commercial part of London, they went on to be institutions such as Lloyd's of London or the Stock Exchange. Here in St James's, in the West End, they became gambling clubs. And we're surrounded by these gambling clubs, still going strong. Not all of them so much gambling these days, but more political. However, uh, back in the 19th century, one of those famous clubs, White's, here on St James's Street, uh, there was an incident that took place which sums up this attitude that people had at the time to gambling. A gentleman about to enter the club had a heart attack and fell on the pavement. One of the doormen rushed out to assist him. But in the meantime, two of the club members sitting in the front window had placed a bet on whether he would survive or not. And they objected to the porter going out to assist him on the basis that that would queer the bet. Now, along this particular area, uh, there are plenty of places to eat and drink, pop out, have a coffee. Right on the corner here, we've got Patisserie Valerie, which, of course, is not the original one because that's on Old Compton Street in Soho. But there's no shortage of places around here. No, indeed. Well, we've left German Street back on Piccadilly and now we're in a very famous department store that's very well known for its hampers. Yes, indeed. In fact, we're standing by a few of them here. Fortnum and Mason's is the, was the grocer to George III and, in fact, still has the appointment crest above the shop, still supplies food to Buckingham Palace and the Queen. What is very pleasant to do, especially during the season, is to take a hamper out to Henley or down to Royal Ascot and enjoy some English marmalade, some pork chops, some nice roast ham or something like that, all pre-packaged by Fortnum's, that has, if not the best food hall in London, certainly one of them. It's also a great place to come and enjoy an afternoon tea. So we've now come down the stairs into the main food hall of Fortnum and Mason and there's a huge array of things here. I'm standing in front of the fish counter uh, lots of fresh fish, everything you could possibly think of. Red mullet, we've got clams, cockles, place. Next to that, we have um, what we would call the cold meats counter. Um, every pie in the world. We've got duck and orange pie. We've got the famous Fortnum and Mason pork pie. Also, bacon, brie and cranberry. And then lots of different sausages and salads and of course the other thing you have down here on the ground floor of the food hall are lots of wines spirits and champagnes uh, everything you could possibly want and if there's something you'd like to taste they have their very own wine bar right next door so you can pop in there have a taste if there's something that you like in particular then the chances are you would be able to pick it up and take it home with you in fact there's probably not much you couldn't get here at the Fortnum and Mason food hall it's well worth the trip down here just to have a look and see what there is you could spend a good half hour or so wandering around and picking up things a great idea for gifts as well because right across the world everybody will know the world famous Fortnum and Mason Well, we're now up on the fourth floor of Fortnum and Mason, the St James's Restaurant, which is where you would come if you'd like to have afternoon tea. It is, of course, Mike, something that's quintessentially British, isn't it? Yes, a lot of people get confused about English tea. And, of course, there are different varieties of it. Most of us, when we have tea, we talk about having just a cup of tea. 
perhaps with a biscuit in the morning or the afternoon. Afternoon tea is a little more special. It means sandwiches and cakes, a little bit of a meal in between meals, if you like, at sort of three or four in the afternoon. And then high tea is a meal that we have perhaps five or six, and that often would include something hot, a little more substantial than afternoon tea. But afternoon tea is certainly a quintessential English thing to do, certainly something that you would want to do here in London, and Fortnum's is the place to do it. If you haven't got time for afternoon tea, there are plenty of other places where you can just get a cup of tea or uh, indeed coffee or even chocolate. And hot chocolate was invented here in London. As you're wandering along Piccadilly, one thing to note is to make sure that you're aware of all that's going on around you. Otherwise, you might miss something like the Burlington Arcade. Yes, we've crossed now from the Gentlemen's District of London, St James's, into Mayfair, a much more feminised shopping area. And that's exemplified by this wonderful Burlington Arcade full of its jewellery shops and cashmere shops. It's a place that was set up in the beginning of the 19th century as a civilised place for people to shop away from the sort of ragamuffins of the street and all the rubbish that was strewn about and the job was given to two beadles, two ex-servicemen to police the arcade and they still do so today uh, making sure that nobody whistles, nobody sings, nobody carries large parcels or nobody opens an umbrella. One exception to Mayfair being a feminine district, a feminine shopping district, is Savile Row. Now, that's a street quite near here, famous for its bespoke tailors. At one time, during the 1980s, both Gorbachev and President Reagan were both buying their suits from Savile Row. It's even gone into the Japanese language. Uh, the name for a suit in Japanese is Savile Row. As well as Savile Row, there are a number of other streets that specialise in various things. For instance, Cork Street and Albemarle Street is where you can find Britain's most expensive fine art galleries. If we move along a bit, you have Bond Street. Bond Street is the street of designer labels and retail palaces par excellence. It's the sort of place where you find shops with one shoe in every room. And you'll also find Sotheby's, the famous auction house. Well, you'll notice that I'm speaking slightly more quietly here. We're now in a church. We've walked along Piccadilly and crossed the road into St. James's Church, one of only two churches in the West End of London, built by London's famous architect, Christopher Wren, who also designed St. Paul's Cathedral. It's a lovely little refuge from the busy street of Piccadilly outside, and you'll notice it because there's a lovely little market in the churchyard facing Piccadilly. Now, one of the things you must do when you visit London is have a pint in a London pub. We've just come out of the church, crossed the road, and we're in the Red Line pub. It's really a very typical London pub. Quite small, in fact, but lots of atmosphere. Uh, So many of these around the area, though, Mike. Yeah, this pub will get busy when the office workers leave at about five or six. You'll see people standing outside the pub. A lot of clinking of glasses and loud shouts. Um, It's a typical... British pub, a typical London pub with lots of mirrors, a wonderful ceiling 
and uh, a very cosy feel to it. You can also come in here to eat, and in fact, many of us do eat in pubs. Typical pub food, British things like steak and kidney pie and that kind of thing. But that's the sort of stuff you can get here in uh, the Red Line. But around this area, I mean, we're approaching Piccadilly Circus. We've just left sort of the Piccadilly area. So many different places to eat out and drink. Indeed, you've got just about everything you can imagine, from Mon- Mongolian brasseries to Ethiopian to very expensive haute cuisine. Um, to more historic places like, for instance, the Criterion Cafe on Piccadilly Circus that was one of the places where the uh, fashionable world met to eat and drink at the turn of the century when Oscar Wilde was around and London was the sort of most fashionable city in Europe. If you fancy treating yourself, then try Wilton's Restaurant on German Street, which is a classic British seafood restaurant where you can also get things like um, deviled kidneys and lamb cutlets. Well, we're just at Piccadilly Circus, which is where we're ending our tour today. Uh, this is a great place to end it, actually, because in every direction there's somewhere to go and there's something to do. I'm looking at a sign here, one way points down to the Royal Academy of Arts, where we've just come from, another one heading up to Oxford Circus and Regent Street. We've got Leicester Square ahead of us, and, of course, to the left, we've also got Shaftesbury Avenue uh, for Theatre Land. But Piccadilly Circus itself is a major London landmark. Yes, you'll notice it's quite a bit noisier here. We've come into the centre of London's West End, the centre of its night district, its theatre district, and in fact there are more plays put on here, more plays and shows, more bums on seats, and more money taken in this area than any other theatre district in the world. But it's not just the theatres. It's late afternoon now, and we're starting to see the trade pick up around the shops and more people about. And by the time we get to half past ten at night, this will be absolutely heaving this area. You can find any number of things around here, from clubs to restaurants. Uh, Just around the corner is Soho, the centre of London's Pink District, and also where you can find uh, Chinatown, uh, a lot of streets there selling just Chinese food. And to our left is Regent Street, which is another one of London's most famous shopping streets. Big department stores like Liberty's and Liberty Prince and Hamley's, the world-famous toy shop, along with any number of designer brands similar to Bond Street. But uh, it feels like a major shopping street, as you can hear from the traffic. And then straight ahead of us is a, a smaller street, Coventry Street, which leads down to Leicester Square, which is really the home of London's cinema world. That's where all the premieres of British films take place, and uh, hardly a week goes by without some celebrity sort of uh, attending one of the premieres down there. You can't miss Piccadilly Circus, especially at night, because there's a whole bank of uh, neon lights. There used to be more, in fact, but Westminster City Council cut down on them. It's still very evident where you are. And right in the middle of the junction is Eros, that statue of love, symbolising the area's activities, really. This is where people first arrived in London often come to and hang out, perhaps waiting for something to happen, perhaps hoping to pick up somebody. Mike, it's been great walking around London with you. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge of the Mayfair, Piccadilly, St James's area. Uh, before I let you go, let me ask you one thing. What's your favourite thing about this area of London? I think it has to be Soho. Uh, Soho was the first bohemian area of London, the first cosmopolitan area of London, and its 50 or so streets encompass all of London life. As Dr Johnson said, when a man is tired of London, he's tired of life for London has all that life can hold and I think in miniature Soho has all that London can hold 
There's so much to see and do in the Mayfair area of London that we've only really scratched the surface. So getting around could be the key. I've already mentioned the tube. It's easy to use, and you'll find a tube station close to pretty much every major London attraction. There are the famous red London buses, of course. Do what I do and head up to the top deck for the best view. Don't forget the hop-on, hop-off tour buses. They're a great way to see as much of London in the shortest space of time. You could take a river cruise along the Thames, and of course, a walking tour. There are so many to choose from, but if you'd like someone like my guide Mike, then contact Backroads Touring. They're perfect for small groups and individuals. And also, if you're planning a tour of the UK and would rather not drive yourself, they'll be able to help. Just visit their website, BackroadsTouring.co.uk. And let me just remind you how you can receive up to 35% off your next weekend break to London or any of our other holiday and destinations. All you have to do is visit our website, ihg.com forward slash podcast. That's ihg.com forward slash podcast for all the details. I'm Susan Spence. Thank you for downloading the Holiday in London City Guide podcast and enjoy your stay.